Okay, everybody, good evening. It is July 1, 2021. Welcome to our Healing of America seminar number two. We did it. We got through seminar number one, God's Hand in Healing are in establishing America, and we are on to the Charter of Freedom, the Constitution, specifically from the viewpoint of the Founding Fathers. That's what we'll be studying today and next week, and uh, and then uh, we'll cover the the Bill of Rights and the remaining uh, amendments. There's 27 amendments total. So we are so glad to have you with us. It is officially summer. I think the first day of summer was last week. It feels like when the kids get out of school, that's when summer starts. But it is officially summer. It's a busy, uh, summer is, um, you know, it's a different kind of busy. So I understand if you are pooped and sunburned and barely hanging in there, we're just thrilled to have you with us. Uh, my name is Julene Jackson. I'm the National Vice President for Moms for America. The whole premise under uh, by which Moms for America operates is that liberty begins at home. When moms and dads understand and revere the miracles and the stories of America, when they understand the Constitution, their children will know and love and revere these things as well. This is my wonderful husband, Al Jackson, of 28 years. We are partners in crime. and so glad that we can teach this class together. Happy birthday, America, this Sunday, 245 years old. Um, I'm not sure. We've, we've got fireworks this year. That's better than last year where all the fireworks were canceled. We the, There's going to be fireworks on the mall in Washington, D.C. The concerts are canceled, but there will be fireworks. We think after church, we're going to go down to Colonial Williamsburg and see the fireworks down there about two hours outside of D.C., this land that we love, land of the free, home of the brave in our great uh, national anthem. It's been sobering this week, though, to realize that not everyone feels that way, as we saw that little Olympic athlete turn her back on the flag a few days ago, and um, we continue to be a little disappointed by our Supreme Court. I just came this evening from speaking to a group of mamas in Loudoun County that are really fighting the good fight in the school boards against CRT and mass mandates. And they were disappointed to learn that the Supreme Court uh, rejected uh, hearing the, their case out of Loudoun County for uh, the transgender bathrooms that are going to occur next year, boys being able to go into the girls' bathrooms and vice versa. So, you know, even though it seems like we're losing battles almost every day, our light has dimmed, Shelley, like you said in your prayer. God knows that we're going to lose battles in these last end times, but um, it's okay. He's not, he, he doesn't, that doesn't rile him. He just wants to know that there's enough of us on that wall fighting his battle. And when the time comes, we know that promise. He will intervene. We know who wins. He wins in the end. We just want to make sure we're on the right side and we're up there battling it away as best as you can. And you are, you are doing your part because you're here tonight there's a bazillion things you could do on a July summer night and you are here and I commend you for that. You are learning, you are seeking and we're doing this together. Hopefully enough of us doing, praying, learning, seeking, up and doing, it will justify the heavens to intervene and heal this land. So don't lose heart when it looks like we are losing battles almost every day. 
So the last four weeks, we got through our first seminar, God's Hand in Establishing America, the events and the people that led the way, Joan of Arc, Christopher Columbus, our little pilgrims, and those, then those grievances and those uh, repeated injuries from Great Britain that would ultimately lead uh, Samuel Adams, the great father of the American Revolutionary uh, War, and his Sons of Liberty and others to um, uh, advocate for uh, independence. And then, of course, the genius and the preparation of Thomas Jefferson to write that inspired Declaration of Independence. And then the courageous leader, George Washington, he's in our class today. I've invited him along with my, my George Washington. And then those dark days of the Revolutionary War, and even dark days of the Constitutional Convention when it looked like it was going to break up last week. And uh, Benjamin Franklin rose and said, look, if God knows when little birds are falling out of the trees, he definitely is aware of this congregation here and, and what this event and this convention and, and pled with them to turn to God and to start their convention each day with prayer. And it, it sobered up those uh, delegates that were there and they got the job done. And then wonderful James Madison, he truly was the best prepared and able political leader at that convention and those copious notes that he took. And so those 39 delegates out of the 55, 39 delegates signed that constitution. And then the hearts and the minds needed to be won over. The people and the states and the Congress needed to understand this new uh, constitution in order to ratify it. And so Federalist Papers were written, articles uh, were put into the newspapers explaining this new government. 51 of those 85 Articles of Confederation were written by Alexander Hamilton, and we spoke about him uh, last week. And then 26 of the um, uh, Federalist Papers were written by James Madison, and then a, a couple, five by John Jay. So the Constitution was um, signed and, and ratified. It was signed in 1787, ratified in 1788, and adopted in 1789. That is the same year that George Washington was sworn in at Federal Hall in New York City, right in that Wall Street area today. Uh, he was sworn in. Put that on your bucket list. You've got to go to the Federal Hall. There's a museum there. The actual Bible that he put his hand on is, is there, and it's a, it's a beautiful place to visit. So a few years ago, Al was traveling with Dr. Glenn Kimber, and they were speaking at a dinner of a lot of patriots, about two or 300 people. And um, Al, as he told me this story, I'll never forget it. Dr. Kimber was up at the podium and he said, who loves America? Wow, the people went crazy. Who loves our founding fathers and constitution? Wow. How many articles and amendments are in the constitution? Seven? Seven? 27? You know, a few little chirps came up. How many amendments did our founding fathers give us? Crickets. No one knew. And so, you know, it, it just underscored to me, how can we really uphold and defend something that we don't understand? Now, I'm telling you, if you'll stick with this um, seminar, this workbook for the next four weeks, you will understand what those seven articles are. You will understand those 
27 amendments. You won't have to just blindly go along with what the legal scholars in the newspapers or on social media or in the news are telling you. There is a wonderful one page outline. I've used this for years, you can't quite tell. And Vivian is gonna put the link to this one page outline of the constitution. When we have taught our little devotional, our children in the morning, I would, I would have this big white poster board and I would just take a, a one article and put a little section for the week. And I pulled it off of this one page and it, it, it just has like a few word explanation of what each amendment is. And so this has been a valuable resource to me. I've just printed it off and reprinted it off through the years. So I'd really recommend getting this one page outline and just, and just looking at it and using it as kind of a, a, a quick uh, overview guide of the constitution. So the, the US constitution, did you know, it is the oldest written national constitution still in use. Now we're only 245 years old. We're really kind of a relatively new country, but uh, our constitution has withstood the longest in, in history up until this point. But it's still, it's one of the shortest constitutions, about 7,000 words. The structure of our constitution is pretty straightforward and simple. It just establishes the three branches of government, legislative, uh, executive, and judicial. It creates a system of checks and balances on each of the branch so that not one branch uh, should dominate the other. That was their intention. That's not what we're seeing today. And we'll talk about why we're not seeing that today over the course of the next four weeks. But really this system of checks and balances is what defines American government. So today we're going to study article one. There's seven articles. We're going to study the very first article, the legislative branch, which that article establishes Congress. Even before they established the presidency in America, they wanted to establish the very first article to be the, the legislative branch because they believe this branch should be preeminent in the government because it derived its power from the voice of the people. Now there's an acronym that we've used in our family to help our kids remember the seven articles. It's legislator, legislator. And um, the very first one is L for legislative. The second article is executive. The third article is judicial. The fourth article is states rights. The fifth article is how to amend the constitution. The sixth article is the supremacy clause. And the seventh article is um, uh, the rules of ratification. So if you can just remember this acronym, LEGSASAR, you've got the seven articles in the constitution. So jot that down. The one page outline that um, Vivian will send to everyone also has it broken down with a LEGSASAR. Okay, so are we ready? Do we have our new, the Founders Charter of Freedom? Um, turn open to the first page, page three, actually, in my book, um, section one, we'll be covering section one, article one, the legislative branch. <laughs> oh, yeah, Honey, you can break it anytime you want. <laughs> I, I'm here too. So, Julene said something really interesting that I wanted to emphasize. Article one has to do with the legislative branch. And that's because the founders wanted the power with the people. So there are 173 lines in the constitution, 173. 109 of those lines are dedicated to article one, 47 to article two, which is the executive branch 
And then Article 3 is the judiciary, 17 lines. So you can see by that what was most important to the founders. Okay, back to you. Very good. Thank you. So of all the people that have resided in America and resided in the United States now, most, I dare say, don't have the slightest idea how our founders arrived at their formula for constitutional government that really has made America what it is today. Remember, even though uh, we have 6% of the world's population and 7% of the world's mass, by the beginning of the 1900s, we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth. And it's because of these inspired principles and constitutional principles and prosperity economics. So the next four lessons that we're gonna have in the seminar one is going to highlight the founder's formula for this free and prosperous America. Now we're gonna go, we're gonna work through the constitution pretty quickly. I mean, you know, most, most young people in law school will take three years to learn what we're going to learn here in four weeks. So if there are any points that seem confusing or obscure, or if you don't quite, quite get, you need more on, could I just recommend this book, The Making of America? And it includes a clause by clause explanation of the founding fathers. I mean, it takes sentence by sentence and it's their words exactly why they wrote what they did in the constitution. It is powerful. Do you want to say anything yeah, about this? In fact, Dr. Skousen mailed this after it was printed to every member of Congress. I don't know how many of them read it, but I love the beauty of this book is it goes point by point. It's not boring. It, he makes it exciting because he identifies who the founders were and what they said about each topic. Yeah. So to add flavor to it in context, I mean, how wonderful it would it be for our constitutional law students to actually start with this book as opposed to just reading case laws. Yeah, what the father, founding fathers actually meant. So you can get this book from the National Center for Constitutional Studies, nccs.net, for $30. You can also get the student edition version from the Thomas Jefferson Center. I recommend that. Yeah, and the student edition is the fill in the blanks and it's it's been updated a little bit. There were some corrections, minor corrections, but a few little corrections. That's a great book to use in your cottage meetings. Yeah, I, I, I we studied this in my cottage meeting for two years every week for two hours. It took us two years to get through this book, but let me tell you what those girls are doing now. They're, they're a force to be reckoned with in their neighborhoods and communities. And so it, it's just good. Get this and add this to your I Love America library. Because when you have a question, you can go right to the clause, right to the article, the section, the clause, and you can hear what the founding fathers intended, not what modern historians or Supreme Court justices, justices today are saying about it. I mean, you might as well learn what that uh, what it means from those that actually wrote it, what they intended. So the very beginning of the Constitution, we have the preamble. I hope you all kind of carry around a handy dandy pocket Constitution. There's the preamble and really the preamble just tells you what the benefit of living in the United States is. It's just an overview of what the Constitution says. So Governor Morris from Pennsylvania, he was a, um, he's the one with the peg leg. He wrote, he was a gifted writer and he wrote um, this preamble. 
there is really cute hand motions in the back of seminar one that help you to teach your children or grandchildren the preamble. So in our morning devotional with our little 13 year old, when she's at the you know kitchen island and we read a little Bible story and we, she, um, we actually study a little principle of liberty and she also recites the preamble every morning. And I taught her through the, um, hand motion. So we, the people of the United States of America, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, the scales of justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, secure the blessings of liberty, like Lady Liberty, securing uh, the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Now we have, have we not taught all our kids the preamble? They thought it was cute when they were like 11 and 12. By the time they were 14 and 15, they were definitely rolling their eyes, but those kids know uh, that preamble. So the three purposes of the preamble are really just to guide the legislators, to remind the courts what this document's about, and also to remind us what our constitutional rights and privileges are. The preamble is wonderfully succinct introduction to the content of the constitution. And I really challenge you to memorize it. Use those little motions. It will uh, trip your kids out a little bit. They'll think it's, they might think it's really cute. They might think it's really dumb, but it will get their attention one way or the other. So we're in article one which talks about the legislature. Now, article one is the largest article, like Al said, it has 10 sections. And under each section are paragraphs. And each one of those paragraphs are numbered as clauses. So you have article one, we're gonna be in section one. And if there's three paragraphs, it would be clause one, two, and three. So it'd be one dot one dot one dot one. So that's kind of how it's, it's cited in legal briefs. And that's how you can find your way around the constitution by the, the article, the section, and then the paragraph under the section known as a clause. So section one says all legislative powers are granted and shall be vested in Congress, which can, will consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. And then it says something very interesting that the people have the right not to be subjected to any federal law unless it has been approved by the majority of the people's representatives, unless they have voted in, in to office these representatives and then the representatives um, formulate this law. However, and we're going to learn about how this transpired next week a little bit and in seminar three, gradually we have seen the executive and the judicial branches of the government begin to usurp this power from the legislature to make law. Are we seeing, I just saw a headline yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, Biden plans executive order reigning in big business power. So you can see how executive orders, the executive branch has taken advantage of this executive order to make law. And that's uh, according to section one is unconstitutional that we should not have to be subject to any, any federal law unless it has been approved by the majority of the people's representatives in Congress. And, um, and we will discuss this more as we move on uh, through this uh, series here. Section two, so article one of uh, uh, section two talks about what is the structure of the House of Representatives. The House members are elected every two years 
And the states are to decide what qualifications a person must have to vote for a representative. So it's interesting, a hundred years ago, they passed the 19th amendment to give women the vote. But in 1787, it said the states all along had the right to determine who could vote. In fact, 20 states before 1920 already had women voting. Uh, Wyoming and Utah had women voting in 1870, 50 years before that amendment was passed. Do we really need the 19th Amendment? I'm not so sure. It certainly was an opportunity for the federal government to step in and tell the states what to do, which was never what the founders intended. Right. So, so people will say the Constitution, the founding fathers discriminated against women. They only wanted rich white men to vote and so forth. They didn't identify anybody in the Constitution. They just laid out for the states to determine those things. Right, right. So a member of the House, they must be a minimum of 25 years to run for Congress. 25 years old. 25 years old and be a citizen of that state for seven years. So the youngest member of Congress right now is a young man who's not married by the name of Madison Cawthorn. Do you remember him? He is in a wheelchair. He is uh, represents North Carolina. Al and I actually heard him speak on January 6th. Where were you on? January 6th. I was at the Capitol getting ready to raid it. <laughs> we were, we, we saw Mr. Hawthorne uh, speak at the White House. I, I was so impressed. I was with Vivian. We were at the doors ready to barge in. <laughs> and so, and the oldest member of the House, uh, in, oldest member in Congress today is uh, Representative Don Young. He's 88 years old from Alaska. Do you know who he is? Know. Yeah, okay. he's been around a long time. I'm not so sure the founders intended us to be lifelong career politicians. So there's a census taken every 10 years and that's how representatives were apportioned amongst the states. Now, the founders originally intended that each representative would represent at least 30,000 people. By 1920, the House of Representatives had grown so much that they were now at 435 members and they passed a law that said that number couldn't be increased. So we still have today 435 house members, but instead of them representing 30,000, each house member, member on an average represents 700,000 people. So remember last, uh, maybe two weeks ago, we talked about how the house here in section, uh, article one, section two, the house initiates impeachment proceedings against officers and other branches of government. Um, and so the, the lower house makes the accusation of wrongdoing with the intent of removing a president. And then the, the Senate, the upper house would actually conduct that trial. Now in my lifetime, in Al's lifetime, probably all of our lifetimes, we have seen three impeachments. Clinton was impeached in 1998, Trump was impeached in 2019 and 2020, but both of these presidents didn't have the votes to be um, convicted in the Senate, so they were acquitted. So you need just a simple majority plus one in the House to impeach a president, but you need a super majority in the Senate. So that's about 66, 67 senators. 67. Yeah, to, to actually convict and remove uh, the president. So section three of the constitution, article uh, uh, one, talks about the structure of the Senate. 
Each state has two senators. They serve for six years. One third of the Senate is elected every two years, therefore, uh, thereby leaving two thirds of the Senate intact in order to kind of maintain a continuity in the government. And um, the Senate does not get to choose its presiding officer. It is always the vice president. The vice president uh, will, will um, break, break a tie. If there's 50 and 50, it's the, always the vice president. Now, when we think of the Senate, we don't think of it typically as a judicial body, but it is in, in terms of when there's an impeachment and then they come and then there is a, a, the Senate conducts a trial. The Senate has the responsibility of determining guilt. So if the president is impeached in the con uh, constitution, it says the chief justice must preside over the hearing. Otherwise the president's own running mate um, might possibly have to, you know, break the tie in that they don't feel that would be right. So it is interesting in January when there was the second impeachment of Trump and it went to the Senate that Judge um, Roberts refused to sit uh, in this judicial body in the Senate. And it's because, and remember, uh, they were trying, they were trying to impeach him again for inciting the insurrection on January 6th. Um, Roberts uh, did not sit on sit at this trial, did not preside because he knew it was unconstitutional because Trump was not a sitting president. He had lost the election at that point. So nowhere in the Constitution does it say you can impeach a lame duck president. And so Judge Roberts had nothing to do with that trial. So Section 4 talks about... Um, uh, when Congress meets and when the president, new president is put in. And it says here in the constitution, it was originally the first Monday in December so that the members of Congress would have sufficient time to prepare for the president's inauguration. Now, back when the constitution was established, they didn't meet year round. Congress did not meet year round like they do now. They meet year round now with just some recesses in the summer and some time off for the holidays. And uh, the, in the constitution originally, it said that the president would be inaugurated March 4th. Now the 20th amendment um, was passed in 1933 and it moved up the inauguration to January 20th. If anyone's been in Washington DC on the 20th, oh, that makes for such a cold inauguration. But, um, you know, I know during this last election, some people would have preferred that we had stuck with the March 4th so we could have had more time to investigate claims of fraudulent elections. But I also heard that there were some conspiratorial theories why, you know, we've moved it up from March 4th to January 20th. But really, back in that day when the Constitution was written, often just out of practical necessity, it took four months for the new president to kind of get his affairs in order and travel the distance to Washington DC, whether it was a horse and buggy or a train. But with modern travel and communication, that delay, that four month gap is really no longer necessary. Mm -hmm. So in 1930, they moved it up just so there wouldn't be four months of a lame duck period with a, a presidency and even members of Congress. Section five just talks about the internal operations of Congress, the rules of order, what makes a majority. Section six 
of um, Article One talks about their paychecks. Now, remember last week we talked about the delegates that came to the Constitutional Convention, the, pay, the states wouldn't pay for them to get there, pay for their expenses uh, during that four month convention. So the founders didn't w- w- want you know, our little Congress, members of Congress to have that same problem. And so they decided that the members of the House and the Senate would be paid out of the US Treasury. The current salary for a House member and a Senator is $174,000. And that has not changed since 2009. Now, to be honest with you, $174,000 to maintain a home in the state that you live in and also maintain a residence in Washington, D.C. is not uh, a lot of money. So they, they make $174,000 uh, and really compared to maybe the private sector, it's comparable to maybe a mid-level or mid-level executive or manager. Al and I have known senators and house members who have actually lived in their offices because they didn't bring wealth to uh, these positions and they would use the shower facilities <laughs> to get ready each day in the gym or they would rent a townhouse and four or five other members of Congress would are, are living um, with them. It is interesting that uh, in 1978, an ethics and government act was passed that made any additional monies that they could earn. They're very strict. They can only earn 15% beyond their congressional pay. But what they can earn money on is um, stocks and interest and dividends that they might have brought to this office. They also can keep royalties on books. It's interesting, though, if you look at some of these politicians that have been in office for decades, like think of Maxine Waters. She has served uh, in, is she a House member? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She served in the House for 40 years. So she's She's still there. She's still there. She owns a $4.3 million house in one of the most expensive parts of Los Angeles. Not in her district. And not in her district. Oh, that's interesting. And even uh, President Biden served 47 years um, in the government and he owns two multi-million dollar homes and he has a net worth of about 9 million. And so you can definitely see career politicians profit from their political connections and somehow, you know, are amassing wealth. Even presidents, most presidents that come into office, uh, um, like President uh, Obama's net worth was 1.3 million when he took office. And when he left eight years later, his net worth was 40 million. And his paycheck is only 400,000 a year. The only president in our time that has lost money as a president was President Trump. His wealth declined 31%. He lost $1.4 billion from 2015 when he ran and when he left in 2020. It's interesting. There's been a few presidents in the history of our country, George Washington being one of them, that would not accept their, their salary. And Donald Trump accepted his salary, but he donated his salary um, to um, different services, the Veterans, National Parks, Department of Education. So that's kind of an interesting side note about their compensation. Okay, with that, I think I'm going to turn uh, the time over. Sorry, Al, I feel like I've been droning on and no, on. No, that's fine. Time's almost over, but... <laughs> That's okay. All right. I, do you all remember Schoolhouse Rock, how a law becomes a bill? 
know how a bill, bill becomes a law. We're going to watch it again. <laughs> it kind of hits on I'm just a bill. Woo. You sure got to climb a lot of steps to get to this Capitol building here in Washington. Well, I wonder who that sad little scrap of paper is. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the capital city. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee. But I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. Gee, Bill, you certainly have a lot of patience and courage. Well, I got this far. When I started, I wasn't even a bill. I was just an idea. Some folks back home decided they wanted a law passed, so they called their local congressman, and he said, you're right, there ought to be a law. Then he sat down and wrote me out and introduced me to Congress, and I became a bill. And I'll remain a bill until they decide to make me a law. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I got as far as Capitol Hill. Well, now I'm stuck in committee, and I'll sit here and wait while a few key congressmen discuss and debate whether they should let me be alone. Oh, I hope and pray that they will, but today I am still just a bill. Listen to those congressmen arguing. Is all that discussion and debate about you? Yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones. Most bills never even get this far. I hope they decide to report on me favorably, otherwise I may die. Die? Yeah, die in committee. Oh, but it looks like I'm going to live. Now I go to the House of Representatives and they vote on me. If they vote yes, what happens? Then I go to the Senate and the whole thing starts all over again. Oh, no. Oh, yes. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And if they vote for me on Capitol Hill, well, then I'm off to the White House where I'll wait in line with a lot of other bills for the president to sign and if he signs me then i'll be alone i hope and pray that he will but today i am still just a bill you mean even if the whole congress says you should be a law the president can still say no yes that's called a veto if the president vetoes me, I have to go back to Congress and they vote on me again, and by that time, you're so By that time, it's very unlikely that you become a law. It's not easy to become a law, is it? No, but how I hope and pray that I will, but today I am still just a bill. He signed your bill, now you're a law. Oh, yes! <laughs> I, right. We've shown that to our kids in the early morning devotionals. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. So that, that's huge link. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so we saw from that video how a bill becomes a law, and that, that was pretty good. That was very accurate. So originally the states, because the Senate represents the states, bills having to do with appropriations of funds originate in the House of Representatives because they are the ones that represent the taxpayers. And remember from our last seminar, 
They're the problem solvers. They're close to the people. They get elected every two years. And the Senate's role, when that appropriation bill goes to the Senate, they are to amend it and then ask those two questions. Can we afford it because the states were footing the bill? And number two, does this appropriation bill infringe on the rights of the people? Because the states were supposed to be a safeguard of the individuals and their families. So before the 16th Amendment was passed, the government was largely funded through both direct and indirect taxes. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So approximately 20,000 bills are introduced each session, but only 10% make it into law. And as you saw from the video, a bill is introduced from an idea. And some of these ideas come in the form of committee hearings. Now, I had the fortune for 16 years to be a lobbyist. I was a registered lobbyist. I've worked for various entities, mostly in defense and aerospace companies like Boeing and Northrop Grumman and so forth. And for a practical example, the Armed Services Committee meets every year to introduce and pass what they call the National Defense Authorization Act. And they do that bill every year. So what the Armed Services Committee does in the beginning of the year, particularly after the president's budget comes out, is they will have hearings. And senior military people and military experts will present testimony. And then the Armed Services Committee, per the input of all the members, will write legislation to solve the problems that were presented to them in the committee. And so that's how the process is supposed to work. Now, we passed two COVID-19 supplementals, emergency supplementals. Was it two or three? I think it's three. Maybe three. And if we remember back, no hearings to determine where the greatest needs are. Let's have the experts come in. Let's have people come in and talk to us about where the real needs are. And then you would write good legislation based on that information. Instead, the bills are written by a few people, negotiated with the administration, then shoved to the rules committee, then sent to the floor for a take it or leave it vote. And so this was all for the sake of moving fast, which is completely contrary to the will of the framers of the Constitution who wanted a slow and deliberate process to get the best product possible. And it was also a way to keep the Congress from dealing with issues that should be handled by the state. You remember Nancy Pelosi and the Obama health care bill. We have to pass it first to actually see what's in it. That's not what the founders envisioned. So when a bill arrives on the desk of the president, after both houses of Congress pass the identical version, once it comes out of the House, it has to go to the Senate. If the Senate amends it, it has to go back to the House for reconsideration and then sent back to the Senate. And then these two bills are conferenced. And then once the bills are conferenced between the House and the Senate, then it goes back to the Senate for a vote and the House for a vote and then goes to the president. And the president has 10 days to sign it. If he or she takes no action, the bill automatically becomes a law. And if it's vetoed, then it takes two thirds of the House to override the president's veto. veto. Now, the, the founders had four basic tenets or restraints on lawmakers. The first one was the people cannot delegate to the government 
the power to do anything which would be unlawful for them to do themselves. So if I can't go to my next neighbor, next door neighbor's house and confiscate their property and give it to someone else, the Congress cannot do that as well. Number two, legislative authority cannot be delegated. And we saw during this last year and a half, governors passing mandates that we all treat as laws and we go along blindly with it. Government, the president, Julene just highlighted with executive orders or even ballot initiatives that we see in states all the time. The Congress is not supposed to abdicate or the state legislature abdicate their responsibility to pass laws. There, are no, there shouldn't be anything such thing as a ballot initiative. They're supposed to have the courage to deal with those issues. Number three, any statute is inherently null and void if it violates what Jefferson called the laws of nature and nature's God. Now, how often do we see that? And then fourth, the law must not be used to destroy equality and justice. So those are the four basic tenets. Okay, section eight of our book. The states delegate just 20 duties or powers to Congress, 20. Remember, the states created the federal government, not the other way around. So they limited them to 20 powers. And we're gonna talk about a lot of those powers today. In 1776, the states had refused to delegate enough authority to Congress to enable it to perform its legitimate functions. And as a result, as we talked about in seminar one, we almost lost the, lost the Revolutionary War. We now discover which powers the states are willing to delegate to the federal government. So power number one, the Congress, and it's interesting that this is first because this, this is one of, the, one of the defects that was found in the Articles of Confederation. Number one, the Congress should have power to lay and collect taxes, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises, those are all taxes, shall be uniform throughout the United States. So when we talk about taxes, the founders envisioned both direct and indirect taxes, as I previously mentioned. Duties, imposts, and excise taxes are taxes on things, not on the states and not on individuals. Indirect taxes are much less painful to collect as they are passed on to the person that is the final purchaser of the goods. And the founders envisioned that it would be the luxury items that would be subject to these excise taxes. And that duties and imposts are taxes on imported goods. And so the founders, because the demands of the federal government were expected to be modest, because you've only got 20 enumerated powers, it was felt that the duties on imports would be sufficient enough to operate the government in peace times. It was during wars or emergencies when direct taxes might be warranted. And the key word there is might. However, direct taxes would be apportioned among the several states according to their respective populations. Now, all of this is before the 16th Amendment. So Edmund Randolph, so what do we mean by a portion among the several states according to their respective populations. Edmund Randolph, founding father, former governor of Virginia said this, quote, 
representatives and taxes go hand in hand according to the one, will the other be regulated? The number of representatives is determined by the number of its inhabitants. At present, before the population is actually numbered, the number of representatives is 65. So these were the original, the original Congress, 65 representatives. And of this number, Virginia has a right to send 10. Randolph goes on to say, consequently, she will have to pay 10 parts out of 65 parts of any sum that may be necessary to be raised by Congress. So that means if Virginia makes up, what is 10 out of 65? 15, let's just pick a number, 15% of the representation in Congress, then that means Virginia is responsible for 15% of the funds that, that the federal government needs that year. And they can either take it from the people, they can sell trees, timber, whatever, but that was their obligation. So let's talk about the three-fifths clause because we hear about that clause a lot today and it has a demeaning connotation because of how it deals, deals with slavery and slaves. So the South, during the debate and the Constitution Convention, wanted to count their slaves as part of the population. And why do they want to do that? Because they wanted to increase their representation in Congress. However, when the North raised the notion, wait a minute, okay, that's fine. You can increase all the representation you want. You can call them people if all you want. However, you're going to have to pay more taxes now because you're going to have more representation in Congress. So the South had second thoughts about that. And there was a debate that went back and forth about people versus property. And, and it is very demeaning. However, the compromise that came to be was the three-fifths compromise. And this was a way for the North to keep the representation of the South down and this issue was also used as a compromising chip or tool when it came down to discussions regarding the federal government's role in regulating commerce. So let's talk about general welfare. As it relates to general welfare, the founders envisioned a uniformity in that notion, meaning they did not want the Congress picking winners or losers. As the funds were not to be spent for individuals special groups or particular geographic regions. So you couldn't appropriate a money for a bridge in New York City unless you're gonna do it in every state. You couldn't do special tax breaks for the solar industry or renewable energy, and renewable energy over other industries. And when you looked at the COVID-19 bill, the Kennedy Center got $25 million in relief. So what about Abravana Hall in Salt Lake City? So that was what the founders were talking about with regard to general welfare. It had to be uniform. I'm gonna skip over that part here. Oh, I do wanna bring up one, one very important thing that's, that's in your manual. All of this is in your manual, of course, but the one thing I wanted to highlight was what happened in 1936, and that's in your manual. manual. And that's when the Supreme Court virtually amended the Constitution by judicial opinion in what's called the Butler case. Please make a note of that in your notes and star that, the Butler case. 
And that decision basically allowed the Congress now to be able to tax and spend money for any cause it considered beneficial. And if you think about it, 1936, what's going on at that time? It's the Depression. Mm. Roosevelt's in office, and this opened the door for the New Deal and for massive government spending. Massive government spending. And this also happened after 1913, when the 16th Amendment was passed, which then allowed the federal government to go right into your pocket. And then the 17th Amendment removed the power of the states to be represented the way the founders had intended. And so now senators are being elected by the voice of the people. So how do you stay in office? You take from those who have and give the, for, to those who have not and bring federal dollars and goodies home. So then that's, that drives the debt through the roof. Power number two, Congress should have power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. The Congress has done really, really well on this one because <laughs> they are borrowing like crazy thanks to the creation of the Federal Reserve and getting us off the gold and silver standard, which we will talk about in greater detail in seminar three. So the founders said credit is defined as trust in one's integrity and money matters and one's ability to fulfill financial obligations. And there are two factors that seriously damage the credit of any government. Number one, excessive debt. And number two, an unstable currency due to inflation. Is that what we have going on today? And our debt is north of $30 trillion. Okay, power number three, the Congress shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with Indian tribes. So as it relates to foreign commerce, Congress can impose tariffs with rates specifically designed to protect American workers, like steel, for instance. Congress can also set up a regime to inspect certain types of imports to protect the American consumer. And that's how they regulate foreign commerce. Now, interstate commerce has probably been the most distorted and abused provision in the entire US Constitution. And why would I say that? So the original intent was to ensure the free flow of commerce among the several states with the emphasis on commerce rather than regulation. The power delegated by the states to the federal government was intended to be limited to the regulation of transportation, not the production or sale of goods and services between the states. They were to regulate the transportation of the products from state to state, not provide regulations. And what we talked about last week, those regulations allow the Congress to pick winners and losers. It allows them to crush small business with overregulation and high taxes. And what you find yourself left with are the big companies. Basically what's called an economic monopoly. You've got big companies. And when you have big companies, when you get rid of the small companies, you have big companies, then the central planners who are socialistic can now control those big companies and keep out. And, and, and they contribute to this every year by sending lobbyists to DC to keep out the competition by advocating for overregulation 
by the Congress. And the ultimate aim is to make economic planning the prime interest in, instrument of socialist reform. And the objective is to centrally direct economic activity to make the dist distribution of income conform to the day's ideas of social justice. Okay, Julian, back to you for the rest of the powers, and okay. I'll be back, Power 19. Just an example of uh, that infringement within the states instead of amongst the states was Obamacare. In 2012, the United States Supreme Court declared that that forced uh, mandate to purchase health insurance was unconstitutional. And so that's an example of, of uh, the government um, regulating within states. It was just, they were just to kind of oversee, you know, commerce among states because weren't the uh, Southern states withholding some of their textiles and goods to yeah. punish the North and the North was afraid that- They were actually afraid that this, the North was going to direct how they could sell their textiles. And they, the South wanted to be able to freely sell them to wherever they wanted to. And so that's where they used the slavery issue to as a compromise to be able to have the federal government regulate commerce. But it was only between, it was only involving the transportation of goods, not the regulation of the goods. Yeah. So the compromise was the North would give the South 20 years to phase out slavery if which, this, which the South and, and the South would allow the federal government to oversee commerce. Okay, so I gave Al those like three of the most controversial and heavy head heavy hitting jobs of Congress. Remember, we're talking about the 20 enumerated powers. There are 20 specific responsibilities. And um, we're going to zip through four through 18, which are kind of lesser uh, responsibilities, but they're important still. Power number four, Congress has the um, ability or responsibility to establish rules of naturalization. That's immigration, how to become a citizen. Power number, number five, they have power... Uh, to establish the rules of bankruptcy. Uh, power number six, they are to oversee the coining of money and regulating the value. We have strayed from this monetary system uh, in 1913 with the establishment of the Federal Reserve System. And we have we began to abandon the gold and, and uh, silver standard. And we will talk about that in great depth uh, in seminar three. Power number seven, Congress should fix standards of weights and measures. So they're to determine what is a pound, an ounce, a mile, a gallon to promote healthy commerce because during the Revolutionary War, there were fraudulent representatives in weights. And um, power number eight, they're to provide punishment for counterfeiting. Power number nine, they're to establish post offices and roads. Power number 10, they're to grant copyrights and patents. If, if you all hear Jolene mention the word education, healthcare, workplace safety, and taking care of the poor and needy, please raise your hand. Keep going. <laughs> Power number 11, they're to establish the federal courts, the inferior courts under the Supreme Court. And we're going to really talk about that next week when we talk about the third article, the judiciary. Power number 12, they're to punish piracies on the high seas and felonies and offenses against other nations. Power number 13, they are the ones that are supposed to declare war, not the president. They were given the responsibility of making the initial decisions about engaging in war. Congress has had the authority to declare war, but two of the biggest mistakes this nation 
and the manual says was ever made when they sent hundreds of thousands of youth into the Korean War and the Vietnamese conflict without an actual official declaration of war. And some will say it was because of the commitments that our uh, president, the commander in chief made with other nations and within the United Nations. And that really flies in the face of um, that uh, principle number 25, 25 from the 5,000 year leap that says George Washington intended there to be honest friendship and commerce with all nations and entangling alliances with none. And I believe that probably drug those, those wars, um, undeclared wars out longer because Congress didn't really have control. It was the president uh, that was, was doing that. Power 14, they are to establish rules dealing with captures on land or seas. Power 15, it is Congress that is supposed to raise and support the armies. And they were restricted um, to provide provisions for the military that, that every two years, every typically every year up to two years, because they, they were worried that a president might build up a large standing army during peacetime and use it to seize control uh, permanently of a nation. Yeah, and they, they use a defense bill every year to goad pro-defense members of Congress to vote for the broader package. So what they'll do is because they haven't been able to get their work done and pass individual appropriation bills, they'll use a defense bill as an anchor for these other bills with a whole bunch of crap in them. And it's, they're also, they're deficit breakers, but because the defense bills in it, it draws people to vote for it. And they end up passing bills that, that are appropriations that are humongous. They're massive, but the defense bill, and that's the point you were trying to make because they have to have it every year. So it's a magnet for bringing on other pieces of legislation that aren't relevant. Power 16, um, Congress is to raise and maintain the Navy. Power 17, they are the ones to call up state militias to protect citizens. Congress, rather than the president, uh, is empowered to call upon the militia of the various states. And they call them up for three reasons, it says in the Constitution, to suppress the in insurrections, to repel in invasions by a foreign power. That would often be the means and justification um, for illegal immigration, for the National Guard to be uh, um, called up to protect the borders there, or to execute the laws of the United States. It's interesting to know that Congress called up uh, during the inauguration of Biden in January, tw over 25,000 national cards for the supposed uh, insurrection that might take place. There were more soldiers at um, in the downtown DC, Washington, um, White House capital area than combined soldiers we had in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, <laughs> during the inauguration. That was an interesting time to live in Washington, D.C. Now, the, the governors of each state can call up the National Guard in state lines when there's emergencies like flood control or search and rescue or riotings. But the president would um, need a special waiver called a posse comitatus, posse comitatus, Posse Comitatus, a special waiver from a state or a Congress in order to empower troops under his command. And then um, Congress would then pay for that activation. 
Okay, and lastly, before I turn it over to Al, power number 18. Remember, there's only 20 powers, 20 mm-hmm. jobs, 20 responsibilities Congress are supposed to have. They are to have authority over the place seat of government. That 10, 10 mile square radius in Washington, D.C., it was meant to be a neutral and non political territory. But in 1961, the 23rd Amendment was passed, which gave Washington, D.C., three electoral votes. And it really deteriorated this protective provision. They wanted, you know, Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, to be a, a neutral, non political z- zone. And we've lived in Washington, D.C., almost 20 years, and it is the most politicized city I've ever lived in. Our mayor, Mayor Mario it's, Bowser, it's, it's thanks, and the man. city council, we have, have we ever seen a Republican hold any mm-hmm. office in this <laughs> very political? politicized area. And so we are certainly not there. They have not been true in keeping um, this uh, place a neutral zone and a non-political territory. Okay, Al is going to finish up with the last two powers of Congress and then section nine and 10. Hang in there. We're going at, at warp speed. We just have about seven minutes left. Yeah, there's there's a lot of meat in this section. And, and going back to what I said previously, no mention of caring for the poor and needy. That's supposed to be a state and local issue. No mention of education, no mention of health care, workplace safety, or, or those issues. That the Butler case in 1936 allowed the federal government to be able to get involved in. And the passage of the 16th Amendment and the 17th Amendment. Okay, power number 19. The federal government was authorized by the Constitution to occupy certain areas within a state if such areas were purchased by the consent of the state legislature. That's a key phrase there, by the consent of the state legislature. So the constitution spelled out for the purpose for which the federal government was authorized to make these purchases. Number one, for the erection of forts. Two, for magazines and arsenals, for dockyards, and for other needful buildings such as post offices. All four of those fall under the 20 enumerated powers from common defense, movement of goods, and post offices. The first new state in the Union was Ohio, which was admitted in 1803. And instead of giving the state all the public lands, the federal government sold them to pay off the national debt. And who was president during that time? It was Thomas Jefferson. So they sold these lands to the states and ownership was thereby privatized and immediately went on the tax rolls of the states. So having duties and imposts on imported goods and selling of federal lands, that's how they were, that's how Jefferson was able to remove half of the debt of the Revolutionary War. So today, over 60% of the land west of the Mississippi is owned by the federal government because what they did was they held these states hostage. They wanted, you want to join the union? You're going to have to give up ownership of your land. Arizona, 45% owned by the federal government. California, 45%. Utah, 66%. Nevada, 87%. And I believe Alaska is almost 100%. And compare that to Massachusetts, 1%. And and they were one of the original 13 colonies. So power number 20, in order to carry out all the previous powers, the Congress was authorized to do whatever was necessary and proper. 
This is called the elastic clause. Please write that in your notes, the elastic clause, clause because it has sometimes been used to stretch the federal power beyond its legitimate dimensions. So during the convention, the delegates undertook to restrict the National Congress in certain ways. And I'm going to go through these in rapid fire. The first was the slavery issue. We talked about this last week, Article 1, Section 9. No more importation or immigration of any persons. Remember, they didn't use the word slave or slavery because Madison said they didn't want to have the Constitution affiliated with the fact that people were in bondage, even though they knew it existed and they knew it was there, but they didn't want to put slave or slavery in the Constitution. So what happened was when the Constitutional Convention was convening and they were talking about slavery, the general consensus among everybody in the room of the 55 delegates was that slavery had to go. How can we ask for freedom for ourselves if we have slaves amongst us? It's just, it's hypocritical. It just does not match up. So as Julian highlighted earlier, the Southern states and the Northern states, basically the Southern states said, look, a lot of our slaves are mortgaged to banks in Europe. We're not prepared to fight for freedom. And at the same time, free our slaves because it would create an economic calamity in the South. So give us those 20 years until 1808 to stop the importation and figure out other ways to do it. And, and what happened was the cotton gin was developed in 1793 and made slavery even more prosperous because at that time, only one in, out of 17 white households owned slaves back during that time period in the, in the South. Okay, so this issue of slavery was one of the compromises that we talked about. The other was proportionate, proportionate representation in the Congress, and the third one was the regulation of commerce. Okay, clause number four, Congress was prohibited from assessing a head tax or other direct tax such as an income tax on the states unless it was uniformly assessed according to the population of each state. The 16th Amendment took care of that. Clause number six, no money shall be drawn from the treasury unless Congress has authorized it by an appropriation. And remember, appropriation bills come out of the House of Representatives. Clause number seven, no titles of nobility were to be granted to anybody within the U.S., and no person was to accept any gift, title, or present from a foreign power without the consent of Congress. Now, Section 10 were restrictions on the states. Let me highlight just a few of those. A state couldn't enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation. They couldn't coin money. Letter E, use anything but gold and silver to pay debts. This proves, again, that the gold standard was used was to be used by the entire nation, including the states. And then there could be no grant granting of any title of nobility, even though we've had governors in the last year and a half consider themselves as kings based on the mandates that they passed on the people. And then section 10, here's what the states cannot do unless they get permission from Congress. C, maintain troops or ships of war in time of peace. 
They can't enter into any agreement or compact with another state, and a state can't engage in war unless invaded or in such imminent danger that there is no time to or opportunity to obtain the consent of Congress. Okay, back to you, Jalene, for the conclusion. Okay, I would just like to recommend uh, at the TJC.com, ThomasJeffersonCenter.com, Al gives an hour presentation entitled The Founders in Slavery, Dispelling the Smear Campaign Waged Against the Founding Fathers. It's really good. You look really handsome when you're presenting oh, too. <laughs> That's always what I think when you're yeah. when I watch we, it. We definitely we don't we don't support slavery. It's wrong. However, it, it takes you down the path to see it from their eyes and important figures involved in the whole process, how it came to be and the process for getting rid of it. So right. it's okay. So um, some of the mamas that I spoke to tonight in Loudoun County said they had watched that oh, they and did. they thought it was really good. Okay, good. They thought nice. it was really good. So um, I would recommend that. And Al also explains why they didn't honor that, why they continued to have slaves beyond that 20 year period because of the cotton gin and this, and it was just a booming business now, the ability to manufacture and right. process the cotton. And, and that would ultimately so lead to know the civil war. So a cotton gin. So before the cotton gin, a slave would take a, piece of cotton and have to pick out the seeds by hand. That's not very economic. In fact, it costs more to house and feed the slaves than the money they were getting back. So economically it was phasing out. So the cotton gin comes along and does it automatically. So then guess what? That contributed to avarice and greed. Yeah. Okay, so Whew, you might have to wipe the sweat off your brow because we went through that in record speed. We discussed the 20 powers that only 20, no more, no less, uh, that have been assigned to Congress. And you're going to notice as we study, um, as we continue to study the next few weeks, how Congress has actually abdicated many of, of the, their powers and lawmaking ability to the president and to the courts because they didn't have the spine to, to maybe stand up and, and decide on some of these difficult things. And so next week we will talk about article two and three. Then the third week we will discuss articles four through seven, plus the first 10 amendments, which the founders gave us, which are known as the bill of rights. And they also gave us amendments 11 and 12, which we will discuss the fourth week along with um, amendments 13, through 27 that we primarily got during the 1900s that have really um, uh, upset the balance of power that our founders intended, especially with that 16th Amendment, 17th Amendment, a 14th Amendment that's kind of poorly written, and the 25th Amendment. So could I just make a, a recommendation? I want you to know this is this will be an invaluable tool. This is a book that we would pull on our laps in our early morning when we would teach our devotional to our children and we'd be teaching them the Constitution. And we would I would read right out of this book to teach them aspects of the Constitution. So use this, refer to this, let this be your manual, study it. And you're not going to get this the first go around. I had I had to take this seminar several times and, and study on my own to really begin to figure out, now what is the 16th Amendment again and how to dis disrupt the checks and balances of what our founders gave us? 
And also, if I could recommend getting this book, The Catechism of the United States Constitution. It was written in 1828. This is what young kids studied in the 18, early 1800s up into the 1900s to learn the Constitution. This is why when Alex de Tocqueville came over to America in the early 1800s and saw that so many people could were literate and knew the Constitution, it's because this is uh, this is what the kids were learning from. So get it and read. It's kind of the so Socratic method of question and answers, and you fill in the blanks. And so you could, while your kids are eating breakfast, you could ask them a couple of these questions and and go back and forth to learn the Constitution um, that way. And also, uh, Vivian, I'm not sure, but if you got that, you you want that one page outline. So as we begin to study the Constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers and, and what their intentions were, we're able to discern truth from error when we pull up in the newspaper and we read it, just like I read the headlines, how uh, Biden is uh, passing an executive order to oversee business. I mean, talk about an infringement of commerce, you know. And so um, keep in mind that the Constitution is only 15% uh, changed or, or has been wronged. 85% of the constitution is still intact, but we can't repair or restore or reinstate something that we don't really understand. And this is why we're studying it. So the constitution, I believe, and I know Al, you do too, with all your heart, it will be one of the tools that God will use to heal this land. Uh, and it will be those people that understand who will be able to be instruments in, in, um, in, in healing and repairing this country. So remember in second Chronicles seven fourteen when God says, if my people will call upon me and humble themselves and seek him and turn from their wicked ways, I will heal your land. And I really believe a part of our wicked ways at this time is just the laziness, the uninformed and apathetic citizenry of America who don't even have a clue about these things that our founders said were struck off by the hand of God. So I just wanna really applaud you that you're here and that you're doing what you're doing and you're learning and you're seeking to understand these inspired constitutional principles and where we kind of have gone amiss. And as we do this, this ultimately will justify the heavens to intervene. That's what God said, to heal our land. Then he'll start by healing our families and our communities and ultimately our nation. So with that, we want to wish everybody a happy, wonderful 4th of July this Sunday. Happy birthday, America, 244 five years young. Let's keep learning. Let's keep studying. Let's keep fighting so we can have uh, another, do you think we'll have another 245 years? No, the Savior will be back. Oh, okay. God will come. But you know what? We'll be on, hopefully we'll be on the right we'll, side. We'll, we'll be living out of the Constitution though. We will, because um, Thomas Jefferson said these were eternal principles. So that implies there might be some sort of millennial reign, eternal principles. So anyways, with that, we bid you adieu until next week. Bon